Um, we're going to read three chunks of Zephaniah, starting from chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Aaron, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Um, we're going to chapter 2, verse 1, 1 to 3. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And final chapter 3 from verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for appointed feasts will remove, will, I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach, reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honour in every land where they are put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, these truths in this uh, ancient book from uh, hundreds of years ago, and yet truths that speak uh, into our lives. And so by your spirit, give us understanding, change our hearts, change our affections, change our obedience of you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A little while ago, I was uh, uh, just surfing the TV, uh, 
one evening and came across uh, Adele live in concert at the Albert Hall. This was before we got Sky Sports. I just want to be absolutely clear on this. I don't normally sit in and watch Adele concerts, but I was caught by it. It was interesting. It was interesting. Uh, she was singing uh, the song, Someone Like You. I mean, a brilliant, brilliant song. You know, one of the songs that's caught the imagination of, of people. And uh, she was standing there just before she sang it. The spotlights were on her. And she was basically talking about the brokenness that lay behind this song. The pain of it. The love that she had felt uh, in that. You know, it's got this line in it. I'd hoped you'd see my face and that you'd be reminded that for me, it isn't over. And then the next bit, never mind, I'll find someone like you. And off it goes. And it's a brilliant song. It's a brilliant song. But the, the lights were on her. And then the camera just sort of panned around the Albert Hall. And it was absolutely clear that everyone in the room knew exactly what she was talking about. That she had touched a nerve. There were, there were guys just standing there listening. There were guys, couples holding hands, just sort of gobsmacked really by what she was saying. And, it, and I was just thinking about it. It just became absolutely clear. If you want to touch the nerves of people, then speak about love. Sing about love. Because everyone in the room... Everyone in the room has a story uh, of that and knows the, the love or the brokenness of, of family love or romantic love. If you want to touch a nerve, sing and speak about that. Now the question we're thinking about this evening is, how do I know that God loves me? I think of all of the questions that you wanted to ask, if you wanted to ask, that's one of the most important you could ask. How do I know that God loves me? It matters for someone who might be looking in on the Christian faith. Because sometimes I have conversations and, and it kind of goes like this. Look, I've, I've put the Bible on one side. I, can't, I don't want to engage with the, the Bible because I believe in a God of love. And when I look in on the Bible, I come across passages on judgment. I believe in a God of love and the Bible doesn't seem to. And therefore, I can't engage with the Christian faith. It matters if you're looking in. It matters as well if you're a Christian here, trusting in Jesus Christ. Just a quote coming up on the screen. Someone put it this way. Here it comes. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if you're a Christian, it really matters. Some of the critical spirit that you've maybe felt today or the uh, pushing your own righteousness forward is come, he's saying, out of just not knowing deeply in our hearts the love of God. And I can't think of a more intimate picture of the love of God than this verse that we have in Zephaniah 3.17. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. You know that one, for God so loves the world in the New Testament. This is kind of it for the Old Testament. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And so the truth for us to think about is that if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, God delights in us, his people. He's mighty to save. 
and he delights in his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or do you believe that God just, I don't know, tolerates us, his people? Do you believe that God delights in his people? Well, we're going to look at three things. I've changed the the headings that you might have on your sheet. We're going to see three things that show that we can know that God loves us. First, he exposes our sin. Second, he removes our guilt. And third, he bursts into song. So let's just, we'll mainly be in this verse, verse 17. But for us to hear it, there are verses that come before in Zephaniah that are meant to be preparing us to hear this verse. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the start of Zephaniah first and see that God starts by exposing our sin. In other words, for this verse to be true in our hearts, for us to accept this, there'll be walls that we put up against this that God has to knock down. And one of the first ones is pride. Pride is the wall that will stop us hearing this verse. And so the book starts by knocking that away. And so pride sounds like this. Well, of course God loves me. Of course God loves me. I'm very, very lovable. Of course God would want me on his team. I'm very likable. I'm very lovable. And so Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2 comes as a bolt from the blue because God says, verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. See, God speaks against such pride. He says that he's going to undo creation. That he's going to sweep things away. And he catalogues the thing that he's against in the next couple of chapters. It's a catalogue of idolatry. It's a catalogue of worshipping ourselves or worshipping idols or insulting people or self-sufficiency or oppressing other people. It's a catalogue of just the stuff that is in our hearts that destroys this world and others. It's, it's typified in verses like chapter 1 verse 12. See chapter 1 verse 12, at that time I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. God is against the complacency that says, well, God, God really, God's not going to judge I mean, if you want the comic figure of today, it is the the person who walks around with a sandwich board and says the end of the world is nice, laughable. God's not going to do anything. God's not going to judge. Or chapter 1, verse 15, it's the attitude, sorry, chapter 2, verse 15, it's the attitude that says, the carefree city that lived in safety, that said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. I can ignore God's law. I can treat people with impunity. I can do as I want. I am. And there's no one besides me. And put a city full of people living like that together. You get the world that we live in. And so that's what happens in these first two chapters. God is against pride. He exposes sin. And so the camera pans around some of the geography that people would have known. You see it in the chapter headings. Uh, Philistia, Moab. Ammon, Cush, it sort of pans around, gets to Assyria, the enemy of God's people, the northern tribes. 
And yet as the camera pans around, it gets to the start of chapter 3. And the voiceover of chapter 3 is, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. And the readers must have thought, well, this sounds like it must be about Assyria. The voiceover is speaking about Assyria. And yet the camera, the visual, is of the city of Jerusalem. God's own people. The camera's turned on them. And so it's they who will accept no corruption. It's God's people who are arrogant and treacherous. Those who claim his name, who do wicked and twisted and dishonest things. And so God exposes sin. He exposes sin in these first two chapters. Because human pride will stop us receiving his love because we think too highly of ourselves and ironically we stop ourselves from receiving God's high view of us by placing ourselves high now someone will say well I thought we were talking about this question maybe going around your mouth I thought we were talking about God's love what has exposing our sin possibly got to do with God's love. This is just the reason that I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he speaks of judgment. This is why I must look elsewhere to find a God of love. Just a couple of things on that. The first is that the Bible consistently says that the opposite of love is not judgment, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not judgment, the opposite is just indifference, just not caring about what happens. That's the opposite of love. And if God were indifferent to this world, and the Bible says time and again, he he is not the God who loves this world and the people in it. C.S. Lewis, the scholar in his book, The Problem of Pain, has a brilliant little phrase. He talks about the intolerable dignity that God does to this world in caring, in exposing sin intolerable because we say to God God this is too much I don't want you to care about me so much and God says I do care he does us the intolerable dignity of exposing our sin of caring and so someone will say well God leave me alone stop caring so much about sin and the effect that it has on me and of course that is what God does in eternity if we say to him leave us alone that is what God gives us in judgment so that's the first observation on that the second observation on on this question of what judgment and love how do they fit together is to ask the question where do where do we possibly get the idea anyway that god is a god of love then if you ever thought about that so someone say i don't want to look at the bible um because i believe in a god of love well where does that idea come from it's very interesting if you if you look at all of the religions of the world Nowhere do you find a God of love like the God of the Bible. So if you look in Buddhism, it's an impersonal force. Impersonal forces don't love. If you look in Islam, this verse would be an absolute scandal. That God would love people like this. If you go to secular humanism, well, of course, there's no love there. So as you look around, the the only place it could possibly have come from that God loves is the Bible. It is our only hope. It is the only truth out there that declares that God loves. 
So there's the, there's the first thing. That's the first thing that happens in Zephaniah before we'll receive this verse 17. It's that God exposes our sin, our pride, so that we don't put up the wall and, and verse 17 bounces off us because, well, of course I'm lovable. God says, in ourselves, actually, we've rebelled against God. It's serious. It's not the end of the story, but it's the first step we need to take. Here's the second step that happens in Zephaniah. How else do I know that God loved me? Well, secondly, he removes our guilt. He removes our guilt. You see, it would be possible to hear chapters 1 and 2 and, and just veer into, well, self-hatred. To say, well, God can't possibly love me because I know me from the inside. I know what I'm like. And if you did, you would, you would know that God can't possibly delight in me. God can't possibly love me. I feel disgusting. Other people make me feel disgusting and unlovable. And so we collapse into verse 16. Do you see on that day they'll say to Jerusalem, Don't fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. Just sort of, I just give up. God can't love me. Hands hanging limp. God can't love me. I'm too disgusting. I'm too sinful. I'm beyond his love. Or we toil under the weight of trying to please God. That if only I did this, or if only I did that, then God would love me. But look at the verses. Why are the people singing at the end of Zephaniah after what you've had before? Well, it's because, verse 15, sing aloud because the Lord has taken away your punishment. A declaration to the people back then that God had turned aside the punishment that should have come upon them turned it aside, turned aside their enemies so that their guilt would be no obstacle to the love of God. And the reason that they know this love of God in verse 15 is that God has turned back their enemy, God's taken away their punishment and now God is in the midst of them, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. God is in the midst of them and they're not to fear harm or guilt or punishment anymore because God has turned that aside. See, the Bible says that God is described as a warrior. That that phrase, mighty to save. It's literally, God is a warrior to save you. God's not a, a wimp. God made the universe. He's a warrior for his people. And of course, when you get to the New Testament... The Bible declares that that punishment has been turned aside in Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the people back then looked forward to a day when God would come in the midst of them and turn aside their punishment. How would he do that? Well, the king of Israel, verse 15, would be with them. How is that fulfilled? You know, the only place, as far as I can see, the only place this verse, verse 16, is quoted in the New Testament is in John chapter 12, verse 15. It's the moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the last thing you'd expect a warrior God to do. You might expect a warrior God to come on a sort of bright white horse. And yet he came, the warrior God came on a donkey. And at that time they quote Zechariah 9, this bit that promised that the king would do that till he comes lowly and riding on a donkey 
But it starts with a little phrase, don't fear. That's not in Zechariah 9 verse 9. And most people think that it's a, it's a gelling of Zechariah 9 and this verse together. There's parallels that would suggest that. And so what's going on? Don't fear, O Zion, because your warrior God has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to pay for your sin. That is how God is mighty to save people. You might think that's, that looks ridiculous. How would that possibly help anyone? That the warrior God would jump onto a donkey and ride into the certain trap of his enemies and die on a cross. And yet the Bible says that's exactly how God is mighty to save. Because he took upon himself the punishment that should have come on us. And he rose from the grave mighty over it to save those who trust in him. And so those who come to Jesus Christ are are brought into relationship with him. So do not fear. The Lord is among you, is with you. And so biblically, the, the hinge there, how, how is it? We're about to get to this verse 17. How is it that God can take great delight in the people who's so offended him in the first half? How does that happen? Just step back for a minute. Biblically, that is because if you become a Christian, you become united with Jesus Christ. It's a bit like the Bible talks about it. It's a bit like a marriage relationship where one party brings into it the the student loan and the debt and the other brings into it the trust fund. And that's terrific, terrific, doesn't it? One brings in the student debt, maybe nudge, nudge, maybe that was your, I don't know if that was your situation. But one comes in with the debt and the other comes in with the trust fund. And you're united. It's a relationship. And so the debt goes on to one and the trust fund is shared on to the other. And the Bible says that's what happens if you become a Christian. You're brought into union with Jesus Christ. So all of his righteousness is for you. And all of our sin on the cross went on to him. Now, and here's the key for understanding verse 7. How is it that God can take such great delight in us? It's that we're so closely united to Jesus Christ. So closely united to him. That the delight he takes for his son is the delight that he now takes in those united to his son, to Jesus Christ. So closely united are we to him. That he delights in us, his people. Do you see how that works? Do you see how that works? That we're brought into union with him. So there's the question, does God love me? Before we get to the verse, God bashes a couple of things out of the way. Pride. Pride is like a wall that will stop you here in verse 17 and God bashes it out of the way. But the other thing is guilt. I'm too far gone. God can't love me. I'm too disgusting. I'm too sinful. And God just bashes that out of the way, verse 15. In Jesus Christ, the Lord has taken away your punishment. And so we're nearly, we're nearly ready to hear verse 17 again. But there may just be a couple of things going around your mind as we turn to verse 17. Some quick objections, verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. So someone will say, well, maybe, I mean, the you is plural, is it? It is, it's plural there. So is this just, you know, God loves his people, but he doesn't really love me. Does he love me or does he just sort of love his people and I'm sort of, you know, get caught up in, in that? Well, think of it this way. If I read something like Colossians 3, verse 13 to you, which says, forgive whatever grievances you may have, is a plural, 
You wouldn't go home and think, well, that was a sort of a general thing. You plural, I don't need to do that. No, we're part of the body, true. But it applies to us individually. So I don't think that means that we shouldn't take this verse as being about us. Someone else will say, well, it, it's a future tense. I mean, uh, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you. Is this just about heaven? Well, again, Ephesians 1 would say that God sets his love on us in eternity. It's about the character of God and how he views his people. Someone might say lastly, what, what about my sin? I mean, I still sin. Isn't God grieved by my sin? The Bible says, yes, he Yes, he is. It affects our relationship. Yes, he, he disciplines his children. But, but that is because he delights in us. He delights in us. He wants to change us. He wants to grow us. So, so far then we've seen, how do I know that God loves us? He exposes our sin. He removes our guilt. Thirdly, he bursts into song. <laughs> He bursts into song. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. You see, God takes great delight in you. In you, he takes great delight. What does God think of when he thinks about you, what does he think about you when he thinks about you if you're someone in Jesus Christ, one of his people? What does he think? What expression does he have on his face? The Bible says he delights in you. He's thrilled. He's, he's happy. He's happy. He's thrilled. Now you'll have seen this. If, you, if you've seen a father with a child. I was talking to someone in, in, in church this morning, a sort of big, strong guy. We were talking, he was just holding his baby in his hand. All the way through the conversation, he was just looking at the baby and kissing the baby and sort of holding a conversation. He was just absolutely caught up in, in the child in front of him. Or you, um, I, I used to be a teacher and uh, I, sometimes they'd put a play on at school and I'd often be helping backstage. And if you just peek out of the curtain as, um, as you're watching the parents in, in the room as they watch their children perform, you can tell which, um, from which child is on stage which parents are the parents of that child because they're, they're nudging each other. Going, here he comes. Here he comes. That's my boy. That's my boy. I think the world of him. That's my boy. You see, they take great delight. We know. We know that. You know, it is easy to think that God just tolerates his people. He just tolerates us. You know, he puts up with us. Maybe he just wears a disappointed face most of the time when he thinks of us. It seems a bit over the top that God would delight in us. I mean, maybe it's just that, you know, God did the cross and then we trusted in the cross. And and now God's kind of in a, he's got himself in a half Nelson where he, because of Jesus, he kind of has to delight in us, but he doesn't really want to. And this verse says, no, because of Jesus Christ, because we're in him, he delights, he delights in his people. Maybe we think, well, I... I don't have that many people. I don't know if you think, I don't have, you know, maybe lots of people just tolerate me. And so we just project onto God that he would treat us like that. So let me just try and just slow down and say this as carefully as I can. That this truth is saying that, that in a sense it actually dishonors 
the death of Jesus Christ and what he won for us, if we say that actually God just tolerates his people and doesn't delight in them, because of what Jesus did and because the closeness of our union with him, God can say he delights in his people. But you see, there's a part of me that thinks that it dishonors God somehow, weirdly, to say that God loves me. I don't know why, but as I've thought about it, I think it's this. I think it's that I, I think if I say that God loves me, I'm basically saying something about me. I must be very lovable that God loves me. But really, when the Bible speaks of God's love, it's saying how extraordinary God would be that he could take someone like me and in Jesus Christ absolutely delight and be thrilled in me. It's not that God is worshipping us, that we've become his God, that he's needy, that he somehow depends on us. It's not saying that. It's saying, do you see what Jesus Christ has done? Do you see the magnificence of what his cross achieved? That God now delights in you with exuberant love. He enjoys you. He will be glad to have you in heaven. He will like having you there. That's what this truth is saying. God delights in his people. And so the screensaver, if your default screensaver when, you, when the mind just goes to God is of a frowning, scowling God, then this verse says we need to change that. Because in Jesus Christ, God delights in his people. He's not a sulking headmaster. He delights in his people. And the verse goes on with another extraordinary picture of God's love. He'll He'll quiet you with his love. I think that means that we will say, God, how can you love me? And God will say, shh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll say, I know about your sin. I've paid for it in Jesus Christ. You're united to him. You're in him. I delight in you. So shh, he'll quiet you with his love. It's an extraordinarily intimate picture of the love of God for his people. I mean, it's, it's honeymoon love in a sense. I mean, every, people know, of course, but that's why we talk about honeymoon love because it's so hard for human beings to sustain that sort of measure of love. But God's love is passionate, intimate, exuberant love for his people. And some will be sitting here thinking, I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm a British guy, I don't really like talking about emotions, the thought that God would love me with this sort of effect. And yet we all know, we all chase love, to know and be known, to love and be loved. When our parents, you know, say we're thinking of you, whatever, it makes a difference. And there's one person out there, the Bible says God, who will quiet his people with his love. And then lastly, he'll rejoice over you with singing. God will burst into song at his people, at his redeemed people in Jesus. He will rejoice over you with singing. I mean, think about singing for a minute. 
we could have come in this evening and we could have, um, you know, all put the instruments down and we could have just read the songs to each other. Would have been quite un- unusual, I guess. But what, what, it is about, what is it about singing that's just different to reading stuff? I guess it's that singing, I don't know, it just engages a different part of you. It brings out pent-up, deep-down stuff out of you. It's raw. I mean, that's why people sing at football matches. I mean, this evening, I imagine some of you will be singing whichever way it goes. You'll be, it just comes out of you. I don't know. You just sound like whatever comes out. It's raw. It's pent up. Out it comes. It's just different. Just sort of letting stuff out. In fact, that's why it's, it can be so vulnerable to sing to someone. I mean, if you talk one-to-one with someone, that can feel awkward. Imagine you have to sing to someone one-to-one. That'd be very awkward and vulnerable because you're really, it's very strange. Isn't it? God sings. What's he saying? God rejoices. God's deepest emotions are for his redeemed people in Jesus Christ. He delights in his son, eternally delights in them, and he rejoices over the people that the son has won. God sings. Now, you know, that would make sense to me if it said that God sung about um, the planet um, Saturn or the planet Jupiter or the stars a trillion miles away. But the really interesting thing is in the Bible, um, the angels sing at creation. We're told the angels sing at creation. We're not told that God sings at creation. We're told a couple of places that God sings. And both times, Psalm 32, verse 7 and here, both times is about his people. That's what God saves his singing for. Not for Saturn and the stars up there. For people. He sings over people. What does it sound like? I've got no idea. No idea. What would that sound like? I mean, some of us have been away on a weekend away and you've heard a big crowd of people singing a roar and you can just get lost in it. What would it sound like to hear God singing? John Piper, when he tries to describe it, says it, he imagines it's the, 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 the enormity of Mount Vesuvius or something exploding and the tenderness of a kitten mewing just sort of gelled into, I have no idea what that would sound like. That would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? But the sound of God singing over his people. In other words, don't you think the universe must be quite a noisy place up there? I mean, a billion, trillion miles away, there are meteors bashing against each other. Noisy universe suns and stars burning in thunder and yet if you could be a trillion light years away the bible says you'd hear the sound of god singing louder than everything what's he singing about he's singing about his people who he loves the ones in jesus christ and he's demonstrated his love in the death of his son let me try and draw it to, clo- to get together with this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, was, I just got chatting to a guy. Um, and uh, it was clear to me that he was just totally, he was totally preoccupied with his son. This is how it went. We were talking. He was a guy just on the, on the street. And he, there were all sorts of things that should have been catching his attention. He, he, he had a broken leg. He had a crutch. He looked like he hadn't eaten for ages. And we, we were just talking. And, and we... Tears started coming down his eye. He couldn't say much, but he, he was from Kosovo. And he's, he's, the words that he could get out were this. Me baby is in Kosovo. I am here. Me baby is in Kosovo. I am here. That's what he said. And the tears were just coming down his face. He's totally preoccupied, even though everything else around. Totally preoccupied. His heart aching, it sounded like, for his son. 
It's a little child. I don't know the story behind that. Do you think that God loves his people less passionately than that man? Think of Luke 15 in the New Testament. The prodigal son. What happens when the son comes back? The father pulls up his skirt. So undignified for a guy to do in those days. And just runs towards him. People say that's so undignified. Just like some would say. God's singing over sinful here. And so undignified for God to do. Why would God do that? Well because in Jesus Christ. His people are precious to him. And if you're one of his people. Then God delights in you. He sings over you. He rejoices. He rejoices over his people. He's mighty to save. That's our God. Let's pray. Father, we observed at the start that lots of our... our attempts to push up our righteousness and to be critical of others just the way that we live day to day week to week often is affected by our lack of assurance of your love and your delight in your people redeemed in Jesus Christ and so we pray that these verses by your spirit would just be pushed on our hearts so that we live out of the truth of them more often But if we're looking in on these things, not sure if the God of the Bible really is a God of love. Please, with these verses and the cross of Jesus Christ, encourage us to engage with you and to find out more about you. So thank you for these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen.